2: This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common
1: Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today. Looking forward to having some more people in here in the coming weeks. But today, uh, I am by myself. Hope that you're having a great day. Well, I found this, uh, it's lengthy, but a fascinating article. Written by Kathy Keller. That last name may sound familiar, even if the first name does not. Kathy Keller is married to Tim Keller, someone who we've talked about often on this show. Uh, Tim Keller is a prolific writer. He's a prolific uh, speaker and pastor. He, He started and led for many years Redeemer Presbyterian Church spread throughout New York City. Uh, he retired from there a few years ago, but he continues, I, I like to say, Tim Keller has written more books than than I've read in my life, uh, and, and he continues to speak, and he's been very active, actually, surprisingly, on Twitter, and he's been speaking a lot about things like Christian nationalism and uh, critical race theory and just really diving into a lot of the hot topics of the day, giving his pastoral wisdom, really kind of putting himself out there a little bit. Uh, And so I'm grateful for Tim Keller. Well, Tim Keller's wife uh, is Kathy Keller, and she wrote just a great thing at Gospel in Life uh, called The Great Commission. The Great Commission must be our guide in these polarizing times. Let me just read the first sentence, and I just want to unpack this first sentence together. It says this during these polarizing times where battles for political power or division from cultural struggles are crippling the influence of the church. We need to focus our attention and commitment to fulfilling the Great Commission. So she makes a big um, statement there. She makes a big presupposition, and that's that we're living in polarizing times where the battles for political power or division from culturing str- cultural struggles are crippling the influence of the Christian church. I would tend to agree with her, but I wonder if you agree that if— uh, that, that, that Christians right now, especially in the evangelical church, uh, as, as Christians are, are trying to hold on to political power, whether it be through a candidate or however else it might be, as they're trying to fight for their own rights, as they are trying to struggle culturally around us, that it is crippling the influence of the Christian church, that it is holding back the influence that we have on the culture around us. It's a little bit, it's turned into a, a little bit of an us versus them, mentality, a good versus evil, if you will, and has put the church at odds with much of the culture around us. And Kathy Keller's point is uh, that right now we've lost our ability and our focus uh, on our ability. Uh, She says to call back, refocus our attention and commitment to fulfilling the Great Commission because we've allowed these other divisions and these other battles and these other culture wars she says, to cause us to lose our commitment and our focus on helping people understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've lost the Great Commission, which if you've been in churches for any amount of time, you know, Matthew chapter 28 says Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples. That we are to go. We John chapter 17, we are sent ones. We are to go into the world with what? With the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to go into the world sharing the love of Jesus Christ, speaking the truth of Jesus Christ. And Kathy Keller's point is that we've lost that a little bit. Culturally, I've been preaching actually the last couple of weeks on the fact that we are sent ones uh, and that that's right out of John chapter 17. And what does that life look like? And I've, I've said a couple of times now that the fuel for living as sent ones, the fuel for living out the Great Commission is... Uh, is a recognition of the good news of the gospel in your own life. So I'll start there. Do you recognize your own need for the good news of Jesus Christ, for the good news of the gospel, or has what was once good news become old news to you? Guys, we never outlive the gospel. Uh, our faith starts with the gospel. It maintains through the gospel. It ends. It's the beginning, middle, and end. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the story we proclaim, and then that is the one that we model. And Jesus lives self-sacrificially, not for his own rights, but for the rights and the uh, betterment of others. Kathy Keller goes on to say, today, there are many groups who, despite some very sharp differences, agree that in a new, more hostile culture, the older emphasis on preaching the gospel must be abandoned in favor of other strategies. What is being said by many in a variety of media, social, print, broadcast, is that the former approaches of Christian ministry, preaching, and community life no longer address the reality of our culture. She talks about how in the past, leaders expected the Christian church as a gathered community to bridge human political differences, to preach the gospel, and help people come to faith. Today, even Christians who disagree about everything else do agree that times have changed and this agenda is no longer appropriate or effective. Uh, She talks about, uh, they rightly observe that the enemies of Christianity and the secular progressive left want believers to be socially marginalized. She says, canceled, excluded from public influence. Powerful voices want to forcibly impose a new regime. This progressive ideology has captured uh, much high places in our culture. Kathy Keller goes on to say, she says, Tim and I and many of our friends and colleagues have had agonizing conversations with members and leaders and churches uh, who are ready to leave uh, because nothing but social justice is preached and prayed about week after week. These are mature Christians who deliberately joined multiracial congregations in order to advance the gospel by demonstrating its ability to break down barriers. Here's what she's trying to say. There's a long article, but let me just sum it up. She's trying to say that while people want to say that we no longer are just called to preach the gospel, and that's true in some level we're called to love other people, we're called to uh, be there for the marginalized, to help the helpless, uh, to give a cold cu- a cup of water. Uh, but her point is, we 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 can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We must proclaim. We must proclaim this good word. People still need to hear the gospel. Uh, that we read that in scripture, that we still need to go and make disciples. And, and we do this by how we live our lives, but also what we say and the message, the preaching, the message that we proclaim. She ends it this way. The gospel comes equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus to change hearts. No other message has either that dynamic or that joy. That Jesus lived a perfect life and exchanged it with us in order to die the death our sin required, and that he rose and is making all things new until he finally returns to remake the heavens and the earth. That message changes everything, she writes hearts, minds, lives, communities, and it's our privilege to take it to the world. I wanted to end there with that to say uh, in our actions, how we treat others, uh, but also what we say and preach, may we be gospel people proclaiming uh, the life, the death, the resurrection, the good news of Jesus. You can find it at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we're really excited to be joined by Jerry Jenkins. He is an author of many books, over 200 books, including 21 New York Times bestsellers. You know him best uh, from uh, the series Left Behind. But he's also the author of a new novel called The Chosen. I have called you by name. We're going to talk next to Jerry Jenkins here on The Common Good. AM 1160,
2: Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
1: everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, uh, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, on the phone for the next two segments uh, by Jerry Jenkins. Jerry is the author of a new novel called The Chosen I Have Called You by Name. Also the writer of the record-breaking Left Behind series. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Well, thanks very much for having me. It's an honor to be on. Absolutely,
1: our pleasure. Hey, before we get started, I gave a little bit of your background there, but why don't you introduce yourself to our audience however you'd like?
3: Yeah, I'm a, a Midwest kid, but no longer a kid. Um, I've been married 50 years. We live out in Colorado Springs. Wow. Uh, I'm working on my 199th book. I don't sing or dance or preach. Writing is all I do. And my kids tease me that I've n- now written more books than I've ever read. So that's uh, that's my story. <laughs>
1: A hundred and ninety nine books. That's unbelievable. Congratulations on that. Uh, as we said, you have a new novel coming out called The Chosen. I've called you by name. People might recognize that name, The Chosen, uh, as a, your son, Uh, Dallas Jenkins, who's been on our show many times. He created and directed the season one and and the seasons to come of the critically acclaimed TV series, The Chosen, which we've told him is just phenomenal. Uh, But why don't you tell us about the new novel, how it ties into the series and what your hope is for it?
3: Yeah, it's uh, been a really special project. You know, when Dallas's career started, I was pretty heavily involved. We, We had a little company called Jenkins Entertainment and and I've financed a few of his feature films, and then he was in Hollywood for ten years, and then at a, at a big church in the Chicago area for many more years. But when he got this idea that this was his own, and he he ran off with it, and it, it just I thought it was so special that I kind of pressed my nose up against the glass and said, "Can I play too?" And uh, I thought it'd be really great to, it'd be really great to have. Um, a novel to go along with each season of The Chosen. So that's basically what this is. It's sort of reverse engineered. Usually TV series like this or a movie comes from a novel. This novel comes from the series. I want people to be able to experience it on paper and, and uh, see what they've seen on the screen, but also to, to hear the inner, inner monologue of the characters and and catch their, uh, their thoughts and feelings. So I'm just having a time in my life with it. I, I, um, of course, I think everything Dallas does is brilliant, but um, sometimes I've been <laughs> wrong. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it'd be great, yeah. and uh, some stuff didn't didn't work as well as I thought it would. But w- when I saw this, uh, it was it's really been gratifying to see that I'm not the only one. This thing has become an international phenomenon, and um, that's right. You know, people around the world are eating it up.
1: Yeah. Why do you think that is? I, I told Dallas when he was on last that my family, we we watched it during the pandemic. But why do you think The Chosen has been so widely um, praised and accepted uh, so well? Why do you think The Chosen's done so well?
3: Well, he's talked about that fairly openly where he says, you know, there have been lots of movies and, and uh, TV shows about Jesus and about the people around Jesus. But they're so hard to identify with and access because— uh, obviously, Jesus is hard to identify with because he's perfect. But, um, but the disciples and Mary Magdalene and, and Nicodemus, people like that, um, they're they're sort of portrayed as saints, and we see them on pedestals or in, as statues or, or paintings. And we, you know, they're so remote from us. He has somehow accomplished this, where uh, he's gotten from these actors the ability to to portray themselves as real people with flaws. And um, and foibles. And there are people that we can identify with. And, and even Jesus has a sense of humor. Uh, he dances at a wedding. He tells jokes with his friends. And uh, I mean, he's still the perfect God man. But as I say, I think I think it's the accessibility. I had to watch each one of these. I should say I got to watch, but I, I, I had to watch each one of these episodes over 20 times to write this first novel. And I never got tired of one scene. They all moved me emotionally every time. And so that's what I'm trying to reproduce in the novel. And our hope for it is just like the hope for the series. We don't want it to substitute for someone's walk yeah. with with Christ. We don't want, them, we want it to substitute for their church experience and especially for their Bible reading experience. We want people to come back to the Bible and say, now admittedly, some of the stories we put in there are speculative. It's like here's how this could have happened. And we we invent things. Mm-hmm. But the actual events from Scripture are exactly the way you'd see them in the Bible. And I want people to, to go back to their Bibles and renew their faith.
1: Yeah, And I know for, for me and my family, as we watched The Chosen, that's exactly what it did. And it was like, oh, I never thought of Matthew that way, or I never thought of Peter. Uh, and it was really kind of, it added so much life to what I've known for so long. Help me understand also then the novels. As somebody says, okay, I want to pick these novels up. How do they flow? Is it, is it kind of that same feel where you're filling in the blanks on some stories? Help us understand what, what we'll get as we pick these novels up.
3: Yeah, this, especially this first one. We start with the the pilot episode, uh, The Shepherd, which is the one Dallas did for his church that gave him the idea to do this series and uh so it starts with the shepherd who who visits the nativity scene um and then i basically just tell the story this, in the same order and sequence that that dallas has created for the the first um, season and um so there you know are it follows every every episode and we're following basically the calling of um simon uh mary magdalene nicodemus and uh matthew and um you know you're going to see, you're going to see in the novel the same things you see on the screen because it it's always been a pet peeve of mine when when there's a book and a, a movie um when they don't you know you you don't recognize the the movie from it or vice versa so where those scenes uh come in they're going to be exactly what you see on the screen but the build up and the things around them there are things you can do in a novel that you can't do on the screen and that's that in, inner monologue where the where you tell what the character is thinking and feeling and wh- what they're really experiencing. So people, so far, the reaction has been really good. People love that inside view. So that's what, they're, what you're going to get with the novel.
1: Yeah. Why do you think it is important? Because I think one of the highlights of The Chosen is kind of, like you said, the humanity, not just of Jesus, but of, the disciples and Mary Magdalene and others, why do you think it's important as we read our Bible to see them as real people, right? To know that Peter was a fisherman and this stuff. Uh, why, why is that important for those of us, even just as we're reading our Bibles?
3: Well, I think we see ourselves in these people. And um, you know, one of the points Dallas likes to make is that when when these people are called to Jesus, he makes them something that they're not. And that's that's what salvation is that's what redemption is that's you know it's forgiveness and reconciliation and and you know and when peter falls to his knees and says i'm i'm unworthy and i'm imperfect um you know that's that's us we can identify with that and um so i think that's the thing is is to make these people uh, real and accessible and see ourselves and say i can have that same experience jesus can make me what i'm not
1: yeah Yeah. And I just think it's so important. I'd love, uh, thankfully, you're going to stay with us for a second segment. We're going to talk more about your career and some other stuff. But uh, you touched on it before, just the the notion in the chosen of seeing Jesus laugh uh, and dance like you highlighted that. And I remember I can remember watching those exact scenes, maybe with the last minute we have left. Why is it even important when we look at Jesus to remind ourselves, you know, he had a mom, he laughed, he danced, he joked with his friends. What why do you feel like that's important?
3: Well, you know, so often what we see on the screen is is Jesus speaking in King James English, and there's there's almost a <laughs> yeah. halo, you know, and uh, you think oh, this this couldn't really be a friend of mine. This is the the creator of the world and the savior of the world and all that, and and we love that, but it's again not accessible. But when we see him laughing and joking and t- even teasing his friends. Um, when he even said, you know, even I can't make Andrew a better dancer. I mean, that's, that's just the kind of thing a friend would say. So that's what makes it real for me.
1: Absolutely. We're thrilled to be joined by Jerry Jenkins. He's the author of a new novel called The Chosen. I have called you by name and Jerry, you told us in the first segment that I believe you're, you're finishing up or writing your 199th book. Uh, and so, congratulations on that, but i 'm curious at what point in your life did you go? I want to write books. When did you know that you wanted to be an author?
3: Well, I knew I wanted to be a writer as a kid I, I wanted to be a sports writer, and I was actually hmm. a sports writer for for the Elk Grove Town Crier when I was fourteen years old i was too, I was too young to even drive to the ball games. My mother had to wait in the parking lot for me and and drive me to the games and to the newspaper office. <laughs> But, you know, I got paid a dollar per inch for what survived and made it into the paper. So I can say I've been a, a professional writer um, since I was age 14, and that's a lot of years ago. Wow. Um, but then it was about 10 years later when I was working in uh, in Christian journalism, and um, I, I interviewed a guy that was just a, d- a dynamic personality. I was 23 or 24 at the time. He was a couple of years older. So we were both way too young to have – You know, be writing somebody's biography, but he was worth it already. His name was Sammy Tippett, and he was just a bold evangelist. And um, so, I wrote his his first person as told to autobiography. That was my very first book, and I've just never looked back. I've done biographies Mm. and memoirs of some really famous people like Billy Graham and Hank Aaron and Walter Payton and Mike Singletary, Oral Hershiser, Joe Gibbs, people like that. So it's been a thrill to keep a finger in the sports world while also writing fiction. And you know, about two-thirds of my books are fiction, but the other third are those yeah. uh, nonfiction books. And uh, it's just been a dream career for me. And, it, and, it, and really, the ir- irony of it is I was not called to be a writer If I've ever felt a call, it was a call to full-time Christian work. And I thought when I got that call, I'd have to give up the sports writing and train to be a pastor or a missionary. And a wise counselor told me, don't give up the writing because sometimes God equips us before he calls us. And you may use the writing to fulfill that call. So that has really changed how I see success. I don't don't have to have bestsellers and big royalty checks and great reviews, although I've had all those. my my goal, my my object in life is to obey the call. So for me, just writing the books is is success because it's obedience.
1: Yeah. Uh, Writing biographies for Hank Aaron of Hank Aaron, Walter Payton, like you said, Mike Singletary, Oral Hershiser. Uh, I, now that I look back, I remember reading some of those that you wrote, uh, when I was younger, w- did, did you ever struggle with being kind of awestruck, like being in a room with Hank air er- or, you know, any of this stuff, or was it like, Nope, I'm here to do a job. Uh, I, I kind of picture myself writing about these guys just being awestruck. Is that ever anything that was ever an issue for
3: you? You have no idea. I'm telling you, when I interviewed uh, Hank Aaron, <laughs> I was I was 23 years old and I was a baseball freak, and I he was one of my favorite yeah. players of all time. And when I was in his presence, I could hardly speak, and I thought, boy, you got to b- buckle down and and uh, get serious here. And uh, but he loved talking the game, and I would say, well, I was there at Wrigley that day that you had a sore ankle, and you only the only let you pinch hit in the ninth inning. He goes, yeah, and I hit that home run to right field. And that kind of, you know, opened things up and broke the ice. But, oh, I, you know, it was something. I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, how I even got my breath when I was <laughs> in his presence. I
1: can't, I can't imagine. Uh, last sports question. You also wrote a biography of Walter Payton. Obviously, we're in the Chicagoland area here, and Walter Payton is – Arguably him and Michael Jordan, right? The most famous uh, athletes uh, in the last uh, however many years in Chicago. What's maybe a story we don't know about Walter Payton or, or something about his character that, that we'd find interesting?
3: Well, one that was really funny. Um, Walter lived in Arlington Heights at the time and I lived in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in Wheaton, I think it was. So I traveled to, to his house and uh, one day I, I called him in advance to make sure we're, we're still on. And um, his mother answered the phone and said, well, he's not here right now. He's gone for the day. And I thought, I said, well, we had an appointment. And she said, well, he'll have to get back to you tomorrow, I guess. And I said, okay. So the next day, we get it set up and I go over there. And while we're working in the morning, the phone rings. and, And he picks up the phone and he... Says no, this is Walter's mother, and he's not here right now. And I realized he had done that to me the day before. <laughs> he, he had awesome. that high, you know, he had that high voice anyway, and he just re- took it up another register. And I, I thought, sure, I'd been talking to his mother. <laughs>
1: That is hilarious. Yeah, you did have that high voice. And, uh, people probably are also know your name from you were a writer uh, on the best selling Left Behind series. How much did that series change your life? And do you ever go through a day where people don't ask you about the Left Behind series?
3: No, I hear about the left behind series uh, every day. In fact, I I usually don't go 24 hours without some left behind joke somebody wants to say. You know, don't don't get behind Jerry in the buffet <laughs> line. You'll be left behind. You know, but uh, yeah, that, that was a total, total that was totally a game changer because um, most writers never see anything like that in their lifetime. You know that the first left behind book came out 26 years ago, and that series, that 16 book uh, adult series is still selling 20,000 copies a month this, this long later. So it just, you know, it's, it's past the 63 wow. million mark. And, uh, yeah, that changes everything. It allows you to do what you want and to and it shows you who you are, too. When you, when you have means like that, it, it, uh, it allows you to be generous or stingy. And uh, whatever you yeah. uh, were before is what you're going to be in spades now.
1: Yeah. And so before we get back to the book that we had, John, for uh, you said you're writing your 199th book. Uh, do you have one more dream book in you where you're like, hey, I want to make sure I write this one before my career is over? Is there anything out there for you right now?
3: Yeah, my goal is to to have the, the 200th book be a writing memoir. Uh, I, I teach oh, okay. writers online, have about 2000 online students. And uh I get asked all the time, and I've, I've never thought about a memoir before because I've always felt like the people that I've interviewed are the interesting ones. I'm just, you know, the the conduit. Mm-hmm. But as I think about um, my experiences as a writer and even including some of those famous people that I've gotten a privilege to talk to, uh, there may be some value there, especially for people who want to be writers and want to know how to, to get into this business. So um, hopefully that'll be book 200.
1: That's great. And again, Jerry is on particularly to talk about his new novel, The Chosen. I have called you by name, which is based on season one of the critically acclaimed TV series, The Chosen, uh, which was created and directed by uh, Jerry's son, Dallas Jenkins. And so, Jerry, as we kind of close this up for people who weren't here for the first segment, maybe they just got in their car and just turned it on again. Help people understand what the novel is about, how it ties into the show and maybe uh, what you know, why they should pick it up.
3: Yeah, the the novel is the chosen book one. I have called you by name, and it follows the first season of the the critically acclaimed TV series that's just become a phenomenon. There were uh, eight episodes uh, on the, in that first season, and so there's eight parts to this book as well. And it really tells the the, the story, and it gives the inner monologue of the the characters uh, of all the scenes that you've come to enjoy and and be moved by. Uh, I loved especially writing the Mary Magdalene scene where Jesus calls her by her her real name, and she hasn't shared her real name with anybody. And she realizes this is my creator. This is my redeemer. This is the man who knows me by name. And uh, I found that terribly moving to write and uh, have enjoyed every minute of writing this novel.
1: I uh, can't wait to pick it up again. It's called The Chosen. I've called you by name. You can go to his website, jerryjenkins.com. That's Jerry with a J, jerryjenkins.com. Jerry, this has been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Brian. appreciate it. You having me on.
1: Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good
2: on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM
1: 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. Somebody that we've talked to many times on our show and also read a lot is Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer, one of the busiest men in all of evangelicalism. He's over at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. Uh, he also helps, uh, you know, he, he will teach at many churches. He's teaching pastor. He writes pr- uh, prolifically, all sorts of places. And so at edstetzer.com at the Mission Group blog. Uh, he had a one-on-one with somebody who is fascinating. He had a one-on-one with Tim Keller, specifically about reaching skeptics with the gospel. It's Easter week, and it's a time when people are going to be, even skeptics are going to be uh, at least aware of what it is that is being celebrated, that it is Easter, that it is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And with that, it might be a time, that you can engage your skeptical family member or your neighbor. Uh, But Tim Keller has written extensively. He wrote reason for God about reaching skeptics. This was a lot of what he did in New York city when he was a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian church Uh, and Tim Keller, he's somebody we quote on this show often Uh, both his Twitter account, his I've jokingly said he's written more books than I've read. Uh, or his sermons from back in the day, uh, Tim Keller is a great follow all across the board. So uh, Ed Stetzer did a one-on-one interview with him called Reaching Skeptics with the Gospel. And I just found this to be really important because a lot of you, I know you out there, you want to be able to talk about Jesus. You want to be sent into your world. You want to see your family and friends come to know Jesus. But you're like, I don't know how to do it. So Stetzer starts this way. If you can answer people's questions and also learn how to question people's answers, that's how you can approach having these conversations. That's a quote from Tim Keller. If you can answer people's questions and also learn how to question people's answers, that's how you can approach. So Tim Keller has been a key voice in the evangelical world, and Ed Stetzer asked him this. So just a short story to start us off. I was on a plane once talking to a woman who lives near Moody Church. She'd had a bad experience with Christianity. So I said, if I got you these two books, would you meet me at church and give them a read? She said yes. Uh, Later, met me at church, and I gave her the books. One of them was Keller's book, Reason for God, and the other was a book uh, Keller wrote entitled Making Sense of God. So I'm a fan, but for the rest of the world, could you tell us a little bit more about these books? And Keller says, Reason for God is for people with a fairly high religious consciousness. That means they already pretty much believe in a personal God. They have some idea, but they they have questions. They have questions. Uh, Making sense of God is for people who actually think the whole thing is absolutely stupid. It starts back further, and I think it's working with a much harder crowd, you might say. So if you believe that the universe just happened and there's no God, but that somehow human rights still exist, you can't prove that. In fact, it takes a little bit of faith to imagine humanistic values can arise from an impersonal uh, universe. So Reason for God is a phenomenal book. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, I'd encourage you to go get it. So are then to ask Keller, let's talk a little bit about that to start. How do you start talking to a skeptic or an atheist who's already a skeptic? What's the starting point to that conversation? Keller says, well, it really depends if the person actually comes to you. Uh, I guess I would divide those conversations into two kinds. I would talk about answering questions uh, and questioning people's answers. The gentler approach is to question people's answers. That is, everybody has an operating answer to big questions like, what's my meaning in life or how do I handle suffering? Everybody has working answers. They just, uh, they're just not actually religious answers, but they are actually religious answers. They just don't see that they are. So what happens is that when you're talking to people and not about religion, you get to know them. You become friends. Then when you start talking about personal struggles, like when there are breakdowns, when a person gets disappointed or when there's a love relationship that falls apart, and their working answers to those big questions aren't cutting it. There arises an opportunity to talk much more about Christianity. Uh, so he says, you need to work with other Christians, your pastor or whoever, to develop working answers that you feel good about. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to hide from uh, who you are from other people because you're afraid of those. That's a really good. So what do you do? You, you prepare yourself for the questions in advance. Well, How would you answer How would you answer if someone came to you and said, I I have a problem that a good God allows suffering? I have a problem that a good God allows a pandemic, 500,000 plus people dying in the States. I have a problem that a kid could get cancer, whatever else it might be, or I don't believe in a resurrection or creation. How would you answer those questions? So Stetzer goes on to say, well, you've obviously been involved in more targeted approaches. Talk a little bit about the gospel in our cities initiative he says, everybody talks about how Western culture is getting more and more secular and increasingly post-Christian. It's true that not all parts of the world and not all parts of North America are post-Christian, but cities, especially in the middle, biggest cities are. So he says reaching the cities is more expensive, more complicated, more secular. But despite these complications, if we're watching more and more people move to cities, which we are, he says, I don't know if that's true after the pandemic, but he says the church has to go where the people are. That's what the Great Commission is about. We are called to go into the world. Uh, and so he goes on to talk about the need to go into the city. So I wanted to bring this up for a couple different reasons. We're in Easter week. People are asking questions, but also we're in the midst of a pandemic when people are asking hard questions. Where's God in this? They might be in your church and they're asking, where's God in this? They might be Uh, Your neighbor is asking, God can't exist if this is going on. Or more on a a personal level, right? Like I said earlier, when cancer diagnosis comes or when the job is lost or a relationship breaks down, uh, where are people going to turn? And Keller makes a wonderful point. Be prepared to answer that question. How would you answer the question? What do you do when cancer diagnosis comes or a relationship breaks down? Or how do you explain a pandemic? Where's your hope in the midst of that? See, as Christ followers, we fully believe our hope is in the empty tomb that we're going to celebrate this week. It's in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's in him that abundant life is found. So I'd start by, A, asking you, do you believe that? Two, can you explain that? And then three, be in relationship with skeptics, with people who don't believe this. Put yourself in those opportunities, and then when... When people are hurting, be there for them. Just be a friend. And as you are a friend, you can offer kind of your hope, the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Like uh, that's what we are called to do. We are called to be sent ones. John chapter 17. That we are called to go and make disciples. And what do we go with? We are the ambassadors of Christ. We go with Christ's message and that's what we do. Well, hopefully that's helpful for you. I know that was challenging to me when I read, just be ready to go. Be ready to go. We got one more hour left today. Coming up next, John Fuller, vice president of the audio team at Focus on the Family and co-host of the Focus on the Family daily broadcast. John Fuller is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.
2: This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian From really glad to have you joining us today and We are thrilled to be joined by John Fuller. John is the vice president of the audio team at Focus on the Family and co-host of the Focus on the Family daily broadcast. Now, you can hear Focus on the Family every weekday at 1130 a.m. right here on a.m. 1160. It's a great program. We're so glad to have them on the station. John, how are you today? Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it, Brian.
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you. And always glad to talk to you, and especially at this time of year. What a... What a great time it is for Christians to think about Easter and to uh, head into the weekend uh, celebrating Christ. That's
1: right. It's like I'm a pastor as well. And so it's such a uh, it's such a high energy and just such a big week to just kind of slow down also and think about. Now, it's a great jumping off point, as you said there. Uh, we're celebrating Easter, but there are some people out there this week who are celebrating it virtually again for the second straight year. And I'm wondering if, if there are people out there who are doing that, if you could offer some encouragement who, to those people who don't feel maybe comfortable oh. being in person, but they are just longing to be together, especially at Easter.
0: Sure. I appreciate that, Brian. And I'll just um, I'll let you know, just personally, this is going to be a, a first Easter in a long time for my family to actually be in. Uh, the church building with our uh, brothers and sisters uh, with whom we uh, we usually get together. Mm. Every Easter for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years now, we've been up in the mountains in a cabin, um, maybe by ourselves or with one or two other families. So we've traditionally um, been celebrating Easter just quietly. So I'm really looking forward to being together with uh, others, but as I reflect back on on kind of the quieter ones when we've been up in the mountains, um, it does feel different. Mm. Uh, I, I personally have felt a little bit of pressure to bring a sermon. I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday. It's sort of like, yeah, I, 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 I feel like I have to you know bring the goods. I'm not <laughs> the pastor, but I gotta have some meaningful thing. Yeah. We have we might have 14 kids of you know from eight to 28. How do I reach all of them and, and where I would go back to to just encourage our listeners who maybe can't uh, get together in a fellowship situation is spend some time taking advantage of the quiet. This culture doesn't allow us quiet right. we don't get away with Jesus like he got away with his father. so take advantage of that and lean into it and spend some unbroken time in the scriptures. Don't let anything interrupt you for an hour or two and spend time talking with the Lord and reading the story of, of Easter as right. captured in the Gospels and, and dwelling on the moments you see there because that's, that's a whole timeline condensed into pages, just a few pages. Yeah. Uh, so I, I know that we are wired for relationship and community, and certainly there are virtual ways to connect with people. Um, but but let this be a time, even if you're lonely, for the Lord to speak, because He's He's close to those who are brokenhearted and are lonely in in spirit. So we know God cares, and we know that it's not about what you do on Easter that He's going to be, you know, doing handstands about. Yeah. It's who are you, and are you relating to the God of the universe and spending time with Him? Yeah. We can all do that. It's just, I think, easier to some degree when we don't have all the encumbrances of, you know, the, the meal that I have to get back to and, and, and uh, am I going to be safe enough, you know, in this situ- situation. There, There are so many things that keep us away from just communing with God. Let that be an opportunity for you.
1: Yeah. And so, uh, John, there's so much in uh, right now for the past year. So much of the talk has been about darkness, about death, about struggle. Uh, and now it's been going on for a year. How, how does the, me- the Easter message of hope kind of give us a better perspective for what we're going through? How does the message of Easter serve as part of the solution to all of the struggle that we've been seeing around us?
0: Well, I'll, I'll try to condense this thought. Um, I've been in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, and I've been thinking about Jesus, who was going into the darkest moment anyone has ever faced, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is Jesus, the, the, the person who spoke the world into being with the Word. This is Jesus, who knows every man's heart. He had spent 33 years walking the earth, and he was... In the garden, praying when Judas brought what could be as many as 600 armed men Mm -hmm. to take him. And here's the Son of God on mission, on point, unafraid. And he says, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he simply said three words I am he. Mm -hmm. And when he did that, they drew back and fell to the ground. The power of the word that created this world that spoke universes into being was somehow divinely unleashed in that moment, I think. And the glory of God was revealed in just a small way where Jesus was saying, I'm about to go to the worst thing imaginable. I am not afraid. I am he. And they finally did take him and he didn't do what he could have done. He Mm -hmm. didn't call down a legion of angels and say, no. So I know that we've all been through dark times and for some of us, it's not lifting. It's just getting worse. Mm -hmm. There's loss upon loss. Mm -hmm. But the guy that was in the garden, the man, Jesus, who spoke those words, I am he, he's on the throne now because he died and rose again. Mm -hmm. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our source of comfort and understanding, even when it's the darkest moment of our lives.
1: absolutely and, and it might be helpful for people to hear do you, do you have a personal story a personal experience where you've seen a dark situation be be transformed into joy
0: well yes and 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 it's not because the circumstances themselves mm-hmm. turned out like all hunky dory wonderful um, we've been on a really interesting 17 plus year journey of raising a special needs child and um we've gone through a lot of heartache and we've had to let go of a lot of expectations. We thought we knew what parenting was, but no, we we don't have a clue. And we've gotten to a point, uh, Brian, of being able to find joy in the midst of the craziest circumstances. Mm. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? This happened, or he said that, or he's talking about what? And, and when he goes to those crazy places, we we do have a joy that's not a happy, everything's wonderful joy. We have a joy of knowing my God's got this. My God made this kid. My God knows where he's going. I'm along for the ride. My My job is to love him like God does. And I'm learning a whole bunch about how God loves in this process. That is a deeper joy than anything the world can give me. And it's not because, hey,
1: it's all better. Mm-hmm. It's because my God's got this. That's powerful. And uh, we're thrilled to have you on, John, and one more question for you, yeah, as believers, we have this hope in Jesus being risen, right? We proclaim on Sunday he is risen, and we do that with great joy. How do you talk about this holiday with a non believer non believing family member, maybe a neighbor? How do you talk about easter
0: yeah and and i I have to preface this by saying, I don't have lots of conversations about Easter with people who don't observe it in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Actually, one of my kids doesn't observe Easter, Mm. and that's a story that's unfolding. And I trust God for that story to continue. Um, I've got neighbors that are sort of religious, and so for me, the challenge isn't the person that um, that doesn't have any sense of religion. It's the person who has a sense of religion, but it's it's hollow. Mm. And so I just try to point to Scripture because I know there's power in the Word, and I try to point to the hope that is within us because of jesus and i try to do it respectfully because my job is to plant seeds my job isn't to win you know win a prayer at the end of my conversation with this person so i just try to respect people for where they're at trust in the wonderful sovereignty of god know that he wants them to come to him and try to live in an authentic winsome way that says i love you god loves you Let's take it from there.
1: That's great. Well, John Fuller is the vice president of the audio team at Focus on the Family and the co-host of the Focus on the Family daily broadcast. Uh, You can hear Focus on the Family weekdays at 1130 a.m. right here on AM 1160. And to learn more about Focus on the Family, uh, you can visit FocusOnTheFamily.com. John, such a joy. Thanks for coming on. Uh, We always enjoy having you on.
0: Brian, thank you. Thanks for what you do, the proclamation
1: of truth and He is risen. He is risen indeed. That is John Fuller. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
2: This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
3: Hey,
1: everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really excited to have you with us today, and we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by the president of the Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University, also the author of over 40 books, including The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Miracles. Uh, that is our friend Lee Strobo. Lee, thanks so much for joining us
4: today. Oh, my pleasure. I I sure love any opportunity to talk to the folks in Chicago.
1: Oh, yeah. And so I actually wanted to start there. Let's start a little lighthearted. You're from the Chicagoland area. Today is opening day on on the baseball side of things.
4: Cubs or White Sox? Lee Strobel is a fan of which team? Well, I have to be a Cubs fan. And the reason is when I was a toddler, my parents brought me to a banquet where the new rookie shortstop for the Cubs, Ernie Banks, was speaking and I fell down behind his chair, and he put me in his lap, and at the end, he kissed me on the cheek. Oh, what a great story! Yes, that will make me <laughs> yeah. a Cubs
1: fan. <laughs> so I've
4: got I've got to be a Cubs fan. <laughs> uh,
1: okay, one more for for all those people who debate
4: this—they want to know what Lee's trouble thinks. Favorite kind of Chicago pizza? You know, I like Eduardo's, but the closest oh. thing to that is uh, Giordano's. Yes,
1: I, yeah. I think that's where I would vote as well. We're we're uh, certainly really glad to love have it. you, Lee. Uh, so I want to start by asking you about something you do. I follow you on Twitter, as do many yeah. people. I would encourage people to follow Lee Strobel on Twitter. Uh, you do something that has always fascinated me. You do a lot of traveling. And when you're at an airport, you will often tweet, hey, I'm at this gate of this airport. Come find me and let's talk about Jesus or let's yeah. talk about skeptics. Uh, a, do people take you up on that? And maybe do you have a story or two of something that's come
4: from one of those Twitter invitations? You know what? They they do take me up on it. I remember I was in uh, Texas somewhere, I think Houston, and I tweeted that. And within 20 seconds, I had a tap on my shoulder. And, <laughs> and it was a guy who he said, hey, I saw your tweet. And I bought him breakfast. We had a great conversation. And then I was in uh, Denver Airport uh, sitting at, at a restaurant and uh, tweeted out. And a guy came up and he said, you know, my plane's about to take off. I just wanted to say hi. And I said, where do you live? He said, Des Moines. I said, I'm going to be in Des Moines in about a week for a conference. And I invited (laughs) him to the conference. He came to the conference and we got to hang out together. So yeah, so I do get some response. Uh, it always fascinates me. Every time you do that, I'm like, I wish I was in that
1: <laughs> and I could hear about it right now. And so it, that's really cool. Uh, as we said, Leah's written many books, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, The Case for Miracles. Uh, the Case for Christ has been made in 2017 into a movie that is right now streaming on pureflix.com. That's PureFlix. And you were telling us people could go there and stream it for free right now as kind of a trial. Yeah. Uh, so we'd encourage people to go to pureflix.com. I wanted to ask you, what's it like to have a movie made about your own journey? What's it like to watch that? How involved were you in the process? And maybe what is uh, what is some fruit that's come from this movie?
4: Well, uh, it's a little scary. It's a little frightening. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing um, because it tells the bad as well as the good. And um but we were very involved. Um, we, um, I got to choose a screenwriter who was Brian Bird, a good mm-hmm. friend of mine who's written 17 movies. And uh, he met with Leslie and I for many, many, many hours to really get the inside story of our life and marriage. And so the movie is, is highly accurate. It's about 85% accurate, which for a made f- based on true story movie, that's really, really high.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, you know, you have to do some time shifting and you have to do some... Um, composite characters to make it fit into a 90-minute movie. But uh, it's it's very accurate. Um, and God has used it. It was in movie theaters all around the world. Um, a, a church in New Zealand rented a movie theater, showed it, and 22 people came to faith right there. Oh, so um, God's used it. The gospel is in the movie. And um, I'd encourage people, go, go to pureflix.com, sign up for free for their seven-day trial, and watch it over the Easter uh, weekend.
1: Yeah, it's a great time to watch it for sure. Uh, And I'd I'd encourage other people, you know, tell your family, tell your friends about it again. That's at PureFlix, PureFlix.com, F-L-I-X. So you've had lots of books, people recognize you, a movie. Uh, I want to ask you particularly about the idea, something we've talked a lot about on this show is Christian celebrity culture and the good and the bad of it. Uh, you know, you may not want to talk in these terms, but you're a person people know you kind of a Christian celebrity. Uh, how do you avoid the trappings of it? So what's just your take on celebrity Christian celebrity culture? And how do you maybe protect yourself? Uh,
4: it's an uncomfortable phenomenon um, yeah. to be walking through an airport and have someone say, "Hey, I recognize your voice. I heard you talking <laughs> and I recognize your voice. Um, so it's uncomfortable. I, I think um, we have to guard against, um, uh, you know, letting it go to our heads at all. I I always travel, for instance, with my wife with me. And so mm. uh, she keeps me with my feet on the ground. She, <laughs> she, she does not let me get a big head. Yes. Um, and uh, by the way, she grew up in Chicago area. She went to oh, Friend High School out in Palestine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. We, we met when we were 14. And uh, wow. got married. Uh, we were so young when we got married that we couldn't drink champagne at our wedding. We had milk in our champagne glasses. Ah. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's true. Wild.
1: So wait, you guys met when you were fourteen? When did yeah. you
4: start dating? Like, when did you? Well, uh, start... that, right away. Uh, we used to wow. take the tra- we used to take the train downtown from the suburbs and uh, walk around downtown Chicago. And then I was twenty when we got married. She was nineteen.
1: What a fascinating story all these <laughs> years later. Yeah. Uh, so we're coming up on Easter. As we said, you have many well, well-known books, Case for Christ, Case for Miracles, Case for Faith. Uh, at the heart of the Easter message is the resurrection. Uh, yeah. You know, Paul basically says, without the resurrection, we're fools. Right. Uh, and so I would ask you this question. Let's just ask it this way. How would you make the case to a skeptic for the validity of
4: the resurrection? I'd use four words that begin with the letter E. Um, Execution. How do we know Jesus was dead? There's no dispute virtually among scholars on that topic. Even the atheist historian Gerd Ludeman says it's indisputable Hmm. that Jesus was dead. The Journal of the American Medical Association says. Jesus was dead. Secondly, early, we have early accounts of the resurrection that come um, within months of the death of Jesus. We have an account of his resurrection, including named eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses. That that dates back to within months of his death. So too early to be a legend. Third, we have an empty tomb that even the opponents of Jesus admitted was empty. And then finally, uh, we have eyewitnesses. You know, most of the facts that we know in the ancient world, we know from one or maybe two sources. And yet for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient mm. sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. That's an avalanche of historical yeah. data.
1: Absolutely. How would you answer the Christ follower who's like, you know what, does it really matter if it's historical? I just kind of quoted Paul's verse, Paul's words there, but yeah. how, how would you answer maybe the person who's... who? you know, they follow Jesus, but they say,
4: I don't know if it really matters if it really happened. You know, it matters because Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Mm -hmm. At one point, he got up and he said, I and the father are one. And the Greek word for one there is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying I and the father are the same person. He was saying I and the father are the same thing or one Mm -hmm. in nature, one in essence. So, and, And the audience understood that he was claiming to be God. So uh, I could claim to be God. You could claim to be God. Anybody <laughs> yeah. can make that claim. But if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, then that's pretty good evidence he was telling the truth.
1: Yeah, that's a great word. We're thrilled to be joined by Lee Strobel, as we said, author of over 40 books, including The Case for Christ, The Case for Miracles, The Case for Faith. And uh, Lee, we were talking off air about your your book, The Case for Miracles, yeah. Uh, I, I would love to know why you write that book because a lot of people are like, okay, maybe miracles happen, maybe not. And and do we actually have documented miracles or are they just things that we have to just, you know, kind of choose to believe?
4: Yeah. Well, you know, um, it was a miracle uh, that is the resurrection of Jesus that brought mm-hmm. me from atheism to faith because I believe the historical evidence for that is so strong. But even, you know, I tend to be a skeptic by nature. You know, my background's in journalism and law. So you can imagine um, what kind of a skeptic I am. And I wondered, is God still in the miracle business today? Is he still really doing miracles? So I took two years and I investigated the supernatural. And the result is my new book, The Case for Miracles. And my conclusion is, number one, yes, God is still in the miracle business. Number two, uh, miracles happen a lot more frequently than people think. And number Mm. three, um, we have better documented miracles than people suppose. And you asked about documentation, Um, It's interesting that uh, in recent years, we've had secular, peer-reviewed scientific medical journals carrying reports that uh, point toward the validity of miracles. Uh, Mm. I'll give you one example. And this was published in a secular, peer-reviewed scientific journal. Um, A PhD from Harvard uh, heard that there was a cluster of miracles in Mozambique. So she sent a team of researchers there. Uh, They went into the remote villages and said, bring us all your deaf and blind. So they did, and they tested them scientifically. How well could they see? How Mm -hmm. well could they hear? Then immediately after that, they were prayed for in the name of Jesus. Immediately after that, they were scientifically tested again. Is there any change in their vision or in their hearing? Guess what? Virtually every case had improvement. In fact, the average, the overall um, improvement in visual acuity was over tenfold. Wow. And in fact, there was a woman named Martine who, when they tested her initially, could not hear the equivalent of a jackhammer next to her. After prayer in the name of Jesus, she can now hear normal conversations. Wow. And so this team was so flabbergasted, they said, we have to see if we can replicate this. So they went to another place where there have been clusters of miracles in Brazil, did the same experiment and got the same results. This is a valid scientific study that has been published in a secular peer-reviewed scientific medical journal, the Southern Medical Journal. Um, and I, I went to Indiana University where this Ph.D. from Harvard is a professor and said, what do you make of all this? And she said, something is going on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, She couldn't she couldn't conclude scientifically. It was a miracle. But, boy, you add up one and one and it sure looks like the answer is two.
1: Ah, that's fascinating. You also have another book coming out on September the 14th, The Case for Heaven. Yeah. Uh, again, why did you choose to write about heaven and, and how why is this a particularly important book considering the pandemic we've been in and this the struggle of the last year?
4: Yeah. You know, um, what prompted me to write it was about 10 years ago, I almost died. Wow! Um, my wife found me unconscious. Uh, when I woke up in the emergency room, the doctor said, "You're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying." And I had a rare condition called uh, hyponatremia, yeah, which was a precipitous drop in my blood sodium level.
3: Mm. And
4: I was on the edge of death for several days. Um, by God's grace, I recovered. And um, but you know, as a Christian, of course, I believe there's an afterlife. Of course, I believe in heaven and right. hell. But how do I know? How do I know? So. Again, I kind of be a skeptic, so I I took um, almost two years to investigate the, the question of is there any good evidence for the afterlife, hmm. and um, that's the new book that'll come out on September the fourteenth, "A Case for Heaven," and uh, I believe there is good uh, case uh, case to be made from the areas of neuroscience, from near death experience, from philosophy, and so forth. Um, And uh, so I talk about that. I talk about reincarnation. I talk about heaven. I talk about hell. And um, um, I think it's ever more relevant today because of COVID. You know, my wife and I were having lunch uh, at a restaurant uh, just a couple weeks ago. And I got into a spiritual conversation with the waitress. And all of a sudden, she started to cry. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. She said, I almost didn't come into work today. Um, We just lost a family member to COVID. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, here she is. She's probably 18 years old. This is probably the first person close to her who has died. She's thinking about the fragility of life. She's mm-hmm. thinking about questions like, is there an afterlife, or is this world all there is? And I think you know, COVID has brought that to people's consciousness. My own brother died of COVID. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, thanks. About a year ago, and mm. and uh, so this is really razor for a lot of people, and and um, I think. It's good that we can have confidence that, um, you know, as we go back to talking about Easter, the fact that that Jesus has overcome the grave mm-hmm. means that those who follow him will overcome the grave as well someday as well.
1: Yeah, it's a good word. Again, that book comes out September the 14th. It's called The Case Case for heaven. Hey, uh, I wanted to get your take on a study that we read about last week or two weeks ago. I think it was Barna, but I could get that mm-hmm. wrong. Uh, that said something to this effect. I was doing this off the top of my head, but it said something to the effect of 47% of millennials say it's quote unquote wrong to try to convert another person. Mm. Uh, and and I, I wanted to just get your thought on that. What? Why is? Uh, what is just your reaction to that? And And why is that such a problematic stat?
4: I think that just reflects poor teaching in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, central to the Christian mission is to tell people the truth about Jesus, the truth about the fact that there is a, a life beyond this one, and that you can know Jesus personally in this world, and you can spend eternity with him forever. Uh, that's the most important news on the planet. Mm-hmm. Why would we want to keep that from people? Wouldn't we want to share that to people? If I had the cure for COVID um, <laughs> and all you got to do is eat, you know, cabbage or whatever, uh, I would sure want to tell people, go out and yes. eat some cabbage and be fine. <laughs> um, I wouldn't want to hold that back. And, you know, we we do have the cure for death um, and, and it is Jesus Christ. And so, um, um I I think it's just natural that we would, we would want to communicate that with others.
1: Yeah. Uh, Leah, it's been so good to have you on as we move into Easter. uh, Let's pretend you were talking to that waitress or you were talking to somebody on an airplane or something, and they kind of asked you what's the big deal about Easter. And you had Mm. kind of a short amount of time to give him, give them, this is the hope of Easter. This is why Easter is so
4: important. What would you say to that person? I'd say three things real quickly. Number one, um, Uh, the fact that Jesus returned from the dead proves that he's the son of God. Therefore his teachings are not just good suggestions, but they are coming from God himself. So we ought to be following those teachings. Uh, Number two, uh, the fact that he was resurrected means that he's alive today. You can interact with him. You can get to know him. You can experience him personally today. And then number three, the fact that he overcame the grave means that we will overcome the grave someday as well. So, um, uh, Who doesn't want to do that? Uh, You know, so those are three implications of Easter that I think are clear and compelling.
1: Yeah. And uh, as we close up, what are you doing this Easter? Are you speaking? Is it just a family day? What what will you be doing on Easter Sunday?
4: I'm going to do something really unusual. I'm going to do a huge outdoor uh, Easter service in Philadelphia. Wow. Yeah. So that's going to be awesome. At Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, which is in Philadelphia, we're going to do a live 11 a.m. Eastern time, a live outdoor Easter service.
1: Oh, that's great.
4: Well, Lee Strobel, again, president of the Center for Evangelism
1: and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University, author of many books, including the one coming out September the 14th, The Case for Heaven. Also, we would encourage you to go to pureflix.com and check out The Case for Christ uh, right there. It's streaming, and you can even watch it for free at pureflix.com. You can find Lee on Twitter. As I told you, he is a great follow at Lee Strobo. Lee, this was absolutely our pleasure. Have a great Easter. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. You're listening to The
2: Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. <laughs> Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM
1: 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian From. about to close out another week of Friday afternoon. Hopefully, you've got big plans. Uh, looking forward to a good weekend. The weather is supposed to be nice here in the Chicagoland area. Hopefully, you get some chance to be outside, a little bit of rest, relaxation, some sunshine, some fresh air, and we look forward to having you with us again next week. I want to end this week uh, with some inspiration, with some hope and some uh, from a pastor. His name is Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, I believe he's out in the Seattle area and uh, writes a lot, especially around this concept of gospel fluency. And so Jeff spoke here. Here's what I want to do. I want to play what he had to say. It's about two minutes. uh, And then let's talk about it and let's reflect upon it. Here's some words from Jeff Vanderstelt.
5: 2020 brought so much chaos and loss. And as a pastor, I imagine you're wondering, like, how does the gospel speak to this? How do I not only receive it, uh, but how do I speak it to others, other leaders, other pastors? And when we talk about gospel fluency, we know that the gospel speaks to absolutely every situation we'll ever face. And specifically, I think it really speaks to what many of us as pastors have gone through this last year. You know, the good news of the story of God is that in the beginning everything starts with chaos and darkness and there really is nothing in a sense and God brings to nothing something. He speaks into darkness light. He takes the chaos and he brings order. And then even a few chapters in we see Adam and Eve sin and ruin everything and there's chaos again and there's darkness and there's loss and there's a lot of fear. And I, I, when I think about what we've gone through this last year, I'm no different than you. I imagine you felt what I felt, which is completely out of control, so afraid at so many levels about what was gonna happen to the church, what was gonna happen to how we lead, what's gonna happen to pastoral ministry in general. I mean, there's just so many reasons to experience fear. And the good news about the way God made you Is he made you to feel fear when you're out of control he made you to feel fear when the situation is bigger than you can handle he made you to feel fear when you realize you need help you need protection you need some kind of shelter and the good news of the gospel is that jesus came to speak to our fears and bring help when we're out of control bring protection when we're in danger, bring shelter when there's things coming at us that we need protection from.
1: So here's why I wanted to play this to begin with, is because many of us out there can totally um, uh, relate to what Jeff says there about fear, that we're feeling that fear. And sometimes as churches, as Christians, we don't allow ourselves to admit that we feel fear. But that fear is a very natural thing. And Jeff even talked about in there the the, the God-given beauty of fear and what it produces in our lives. And and, and I think it's really important in the midst of a pandemic in which so many people have lost so many things, health, maybe even loved ones, jobs, uh, money, uh, relationships, normalcy, whatever else it might be, in a season where we have lost so much, and you don't know what's coming, we have, to, we have to name it and acknowledge that some of us are afraid. Like, we're, we're fearful. I don't know where along the line we got into these habits of Christians of trying to, like, act like fear is a, some sort of non-Christian thing. Like, there's something wrong with the concept of fear. Like, no, fear is a very natural thing. And so if you're feeling fearful today, I want you to just acknowledge it, because what you don't want to do is to add shame, to add guilt on top of your fear. Like, oh, I'm terrified of the present. I'm fearful of the future, and I feel guilty for feeling that way. No. No. But then the Bible does tell us what we can do with our fear. What did what did God tell uh, tell Joshua when Joshua was uh, be, he was called to take over from Moses? Can you imagine that and to lead the Israelites into the Promised Land? Like like if you were called to do that, that would be a fear-inducing calling. But over and over again, God tells him, "Don't be afraid. Fear not. Why? Because I'm with you. Because I'm with you." As we feel fear. It needs to push us back into the reality that our God is present, that he has not abandoned us, that this pandemic is not a sign that God left the building, that the divisiveness around us is not a sign that God has lost control, but that God says, I will be with you always. Fear not. Why? Not fear not because it's sinful. Fear not because I am with you. That promise of God's presence is still. it's still, it's still uh, valid. It's still true. God says, I will be with you always. And Jeff tells us that the gospel, the answer to our fears is the gospel, his idea of gospel fluency, that as we know the good news of the gospel, that as we internalize the gospel, that as we are brought back to the gospel, that in our fear, we are reminded that God is present. God is active and God has done something. That there is coming a day when there will be no more pandemics. Do you realize that? Our eternity, there will be no more pandemics. There will not be divisiveness. There will not be the brokenness that comes through sin. And we can we can hold on hope for that. That yes, we are ravaged in the already not yet, that, that we deal with the effects of sin and brokenness, but that God says. That's not how it's always going to be that, that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that uh, where oh death is your victory, where oh death is your sting. And what we're going to celebrate on Easter, that uh, Jesus has won the victory over the grave, that in Christ. We have victory that sin is no longer ultimate. Death is no longer ultimate. Judgment is no longer ultimate. But Jesus is ultimate, that that victory has been won and has always been won. And so as we struggle in the already not yet here of like knowing that Jesus has won the victory, but still having to feel the effects of sin and brokenness in this world. We can hold on to what is to come. I think that's what Vanderstelt is getting at here, acknowledging our fears, bringing it to God, understanding under the umbrella of the gospel that we can have hope and we can hold on. If you're fearful, if you're anxious, right, do not be anxious about anything. But that's not where the verse ends. It says, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God will tra- that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Where does that peace come from? It doesn't come from the removal of our problems, of our fear, of our anxiety. It comes from the knowledge and the understanding and the uh, the truth of who God is. that that he is present and active, and he is ultimate over our fears. I think we need to hear that as we go into our weekend. I'm thankful for the words there of Jeff Vanderstelt about the gospel and how it speaks to our fears, our legitimate fears. As we close this week, we've been closing every day out of the book of Jude, our doxology. Uh, I just love to kind of put a bow on the show this way. So let's do that. We end the book of Jude this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. We're glad that you joined us today on The Common Good. We hope that you have a great weekend. Join us again on Monday from 4 until 6. Until then, again, have a great weekend. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.